isn't it amazing to just worship God? I, I hope we can understand the beauty of what that is. Because I, I, I know as a guy, sometimes I tend to incline towards getting into the word. But can I just say that worship is so important for us as followers of Jesus because it's through worship and just this idea of music. And as we see it laid out, it's different than a sermon. Worship, and I hope this happens for you, it enables our heart to communicate. We're being demonstrative in how we worship. We're communicating truth. It engages us emotionally. It engages our will. Truth be told, worship engages every aspect of who we are made in the image of God. And that is how we connect and build this relationship with him. So I hope that as we've done that, that God is now just going to give us hearts that are humble and receptive to his word. Um, you know, I, I was, Meredith mentioned the cross as the final word. And can I just be honest with you? I love that song. I was kind of hoping that we were going to segue into that. Uh, we sang the old rugged cross. I remember singing that as a, a boy growing up. I love both of those songs. Truths about the cross. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the cross. This week, we're going to be talking about Jesus riding into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, before I get there, though, I need us to realize that, and turn with me if you would to Luke 19, but before I read this, let me just quickly recap what I touched on last week uh, with regard to a certain portion of the message. Because many times as we read through the Gospels, there's a question, a nagging question, can I really believe everything that this says? Or, or is it exaggerated? Does he uh, surrender on behalf of something that's theological to truth? Does he surrender truth? Does he let facts fall by the wayside um, and exaggerate them in the hope that he's able to prove some theological point. And, and you're gonna, as you read through the Gospels, they don't read that way. They are very factually focused. Let me just share a few things in way of reminder. We learned last week that there are numerous prophecies Peter, about the coming Messiah. Peter Stoner grabbed eight prophecies in which it would be utterly impossible for someone to fulfill on their own initiative, like where they would be born, how they would die. And he gathered this and, and he spoke about them and how Jesus fulfilled them, utterly impossible for him to do it on his own. And he came up with this astronomical improbability that it happened. And yet, church, they were fulfilled. They happened according to how God spoke them through his prophets. Another thing that we looked at, C.S. Lewis, who's truly, when he was alive, was an expert because he was a literature teacher. He was an expert in this concept of legend. And when he became a Christian, he began to teach very clearly the Gospels do not read like legend. For example, in a legend, you're not going to find little incidental details. There's no need for them because a legend is embellished and it's seeking to grab someone's attention. And sometimes the incidental details are like bumps in the road. Uh, they're like the rumble strips on the side of the road. They're, they're, they're just not important when you're looking at a legend. And I'm going to read a legend to you a little bit later in the sermon um, as it fits into the message today, and you're going to see my point. But the truth is that legends don't focus on incidental details, and yet the Gospels do. And we looked at a few of those. They don't sh legends don't share embarrassing details about the men that, were, that you're supposed to be following. That's a horrible sales technique. Don't talk about them. Don't talk about how Peter denied Jesus three times. 
okay? And yet the Gospels talk about, many times talk about these embarrassing details. Jesus' hard sayings are rarely explained. They're kind of like left out there for you to wrestle with, whereas in a legend, they're going to be very quick to explain those hard sayings so that you understand them. But the Gospels don't read that way. They're eyewitness accounts that corroborate the story. And then fourthly, Luke's historical accuracy. So profound. William Ramsey in the early, 1980, early 1900s was very clear. He held to what's commonly called the Tupingian theory, which basically saw all of the Gospels being written in the second century. And liberals of his day, early 1900s and before, that, that was their mainstay. That's what they believed. And so consequently, they were not written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were written by another generation that tried their best to remember the facts, but those facts got distorted into a legend. Well, William Ramsey did tremendous amount of archaeology, wrote several books on this. This was his conclusion. He was a liberal who truly believed that they were written not by Luke, the book of Acts that is, but by some other person who wasn't there. He says this, Luke is a historian of the first rank. He should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. And if you look at the book of Luke, he does this, 84 facts, specific facts, that if you are not an eyewitness of what was written, you wouldn't know most of them. And yet Luke does. How? Because he was an eyewitness to Paul's travels. And he gathered eyewitness accounts. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke wasn't there when Jesus was born, when he died and rose from the dead, but he did speak with those who were, and he wrote them down. And so Ramsey makes this very stark realization that Luke, was truly an eyewitness. In other words, he was there in the 50s and 60s when Paul was traveling. And he is of the best. He's of the rank of the greatest historians. See, if a writer is exact in, and faithful to his historical details, should we not consider him reliable in his details of miraculous events? Those are historical as well. So why is it that the skeptics will accept the facts, 84 of them just in the book of Acts, or excuse me, the, the Gospel of Luke, why does he accept those? But when it comes to the miracles, discard them. See, there's a bias in there. And so I'm going to challenge us. If these Gospels are reliable, and the way Luke writes them, they lean in that direction, then we need to accept everything that he speaks about. Not just the facts, but who Jesus claimed he was. So today is Palm Sunday. Let me let me tell you a story when I was a kid. I have so many stories as a kid. I really do. Most of them are how I got in trouble, and, and this is not an exception, I'm afraid. When I was a kid, I loved to talk trash. When it comes to sports, I still kind of do, but you know that when I'm you know when I'm teasing you. But I love to talk trash, and especially back then. And so I would do that. And but my problem was when I talked trash back then, it was hurtful. It got me in a lot of trouble. There was a gentleman who was older than me. Uh, my next door neighbor and I were like best buds. And we were, I don't know, maybe in fourth grade at the time. And he, he wanted to, to beat us up. He was just so tired of our mouths. And he cornered us. And he would, my friend could run that way. I could run that way. But we knew that if we tried, that he would catch one of us and pummel us. So we were kind of looking at each other like, Okay, who's going to get it? 
And at this point, we see my oldest brother, Ken, and he's starting to run towards us. I start, I start talking smack. I start talking about, yeah, and we're going to do this, and you can't do this to us. And the guy's looking at me like saying, okay, you and what army? And all I could say was, just turn around. And my brother was like steps behind him, and he turned around. He saw, and he ran for his life. He escaped with his life that day, so that was fortunate. But let me share that scenario with you just a little bit, because my brother came to my rescue to deliver me. What if I had earlier, like 30 minutes earlier, gotten into an argument, a heated argument with both of my parents, which I would do with my mom, never with my dad. But let's say that happened, and I stormed out, and I was just so angry, and then I got into this argument with this guy, Steve, and that's what caused the, uh, him to threaten to beat us up. And then I see my brother coming to me, and I start talking smack with Steve, and Greg does as well, and we think we're all that in a bag of chips, as they say. And then my brother, Ken, comes up, the guy runs off, and I say, Ken, thank you for coming to rescue us. And he looks at me and says, Mike, I didn't come to rescue you. I came you to get reconciled with mom and dad. Ouch. Oh, really? You didn't come to rescue me? That story right there is not too far from the story that I'm about to read to you. Jesus, or, or Luke, as we read these verses, Luke focuses on how Jesus came to bring peace. But the question is, what kind of peace? Because the Jews thought the Messiah is going to come to conquer the Romans and bring worldwide peace, political peace between nations and people. And yes, Jesus came to bring peace, but not that type of peace. Hopefully, though, as generations spread, as the kingdom spreads, it's going to impact nations and how they deal with other nations. But this peace came to affect us spiritually. Let me read the story to you. After Jesus had said this, now I'm going to pause right there before we go any further. I've got a lot more to read. After Jesus, what is this? Something different that Luke does that Matthew, Mark, and John don't do. Matthew and Mark, they have the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem following on the heels of the healing of Bartimaeus, which according to Luke happens at the end of chapter 18. That's not wrong for Matthew and Mark not to include the story of Zacchaeus and what Jesus said at that dinner party, which is a parable we'll get into. It's not wrong for them to exclude that. They're being Every gospel writer is choosing what to include because the gospel writer is not just trying to record history and how it happened, but he has a point to make. Luke is making a point by including this. In this parable that just precedes verse 20 after Jesus said this, the this, look at verse 11, is this. While they were listening to this, that is what Jesus was saying to Zacchaeus at his banquet, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Jesus then tells them a parable about a nobleman who goes off to a foreign country in order to receive a kingdom. Now the NIV, if you have it, says 
to be made king. It's literally to receive a kingdom. Regardless, this man comes back as a king. Luke, his very purpose of including this, then segues into what we call Palm Sunday with this phrase, after Jesus had said this, with his point being Jesus is the king in that parable. This is what he says. Now listen. He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, you come to Bethany first, that's about two miles from Jerusalem. Then you come to Bethphage, which is about a mile from Jerusalem, both of which are on this mountain ridge called the Mount of Olives. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them the Lord needs it. I want you to underline that phrase, the Lord. The Lord needs it. Verse 32. Those who, who were set ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked him, why are you untying? I mean, wouldn't you ask that? Wait, 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 wait. Why are you untying that colt? Yeah, they, you want to steal it, right? Why are you untying that colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. Th that's all we're told. Okay, owner must be fine with that, right? They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the, on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Lazarus had just been raised from the dead, by the way. Just a few miles before in Jericho, Bartimaeus. The, the blind man was healed. This is what they say. Blessed is the king. Underline that. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace. Underline that word peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Underline that phrase, the stones. The stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem, and can I just be real personal with you? Every time I read this, I just feel the emotion that Jesus is feeling. I hope you can too. He's so grieved in his spirit at this point. Even in view of all that the people are saying, as he's approaching Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, underline that word peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one Stone, underline that word stone. Not one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So Jesus sends some of his disciples ahead of him. We don't know who those are. And they're to find a colt that's been tied up. Now a colt, that is, and Luke doesn't tell us this, but it's the foal of a donkey. Okay, 
So this is their donkey. It's not a horse. It's a donkey. And they find the donkey. The owner turns around and says, hey, what, are you, what are you guys doing? And they say, the Lord needs it. There's something interesting. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. This phrase, ha kurios in the Greek, the Lord, is a then the Greek translation of the Hebrew phrase, ha-adonai, the Lord. Now here's the significance of this. Throughout the entire Old Testament, ha-adonai, the Lord, is a title that was never given to anyone but Yahweh. You can research that if you want. The Lord. Now, my Lord, or Lord, Kuriyot, okay, Adonai, okay, that can be given to a king or someone, an official, but Ha-Adonai, the Lord, that was a title strictly given only to Yahweh. When we read through the New Testament, here's what we discover. Ha-Kurios, the Lord, again, the Greek translation of that Hebrew phrase, the Lord. We only find Jesus using that phrase about himself or people after his resurrection using that phrase. So Luke, since he's writing this book after the resurrection, when he, in his commentaries, in his side notes as a narrator, he will use that phrase to refer to Jesus. You never find it on the lips of anyone, any human being other than Jesus, before the resurrection. Okay? So this is important. Jesus is telling them to answer the question, who, who, um, why are you doing this with the Lord? Yahweh needs this. And again, kurios can mean master or mister, like Mr. Michael Curtis. But I, as a human, would never be called the Lord. All right? So Jesus is saying with authority here, God needs this. And whether they completely understood that or not, after the resurrection, apparently they did. Jesus is willing to accept that title, the Lord. So with authority, then, he is doing this. Well, what exactly is Jesus doing? Jesus is about to ride into Jerusalem, fulfill a prophecy that we'll look at that was actually read earlier this morning, and he is going to accomplish something as the prince, or excuse me, the king of peace. And, and I want to unwrap that and what that would even mean for them and for us. Okay, But three things that we need to, to note here. Because Luke, this is Luke's purpose. The first thing is that Jesus rides into Jerusalem, which is Israel's capital. That's where the king's palace would be, right? Jesus rides into the capital, not on a white horse. But on what? On a donkey. You see, a king, when he's riding in to express power and authority and this domineering, conquering spirit, he would ride a horse and even sometimes a white horse. We actually see the concept of white horse in Revelation to portray this concept of conquering, a conquering king. But he doesn't ride in Jerusalem that way. How does he ride in on a donkey? 
A donkey is a burst of is a beast of burden. It's said that all of David's sons rode donkeys. A donkey does not represent conquering, it actually represents peace. You ride a donkey during times of peace, you ride a horse during times of war. Jesus comes into Jerusalem not on a horse, but on a donkey. And so right away, the people are seeing something and it's like, wait, wait, he's, we're hailing him as king, but he's on a donkey. And it starts communicating something in this line of peace, not conquest. Second thing I do want us to see is that this is actually, excuse me, in verse 38, the people hail him as king and they say, look at there in the, in, <coughs> excuse me, the second part of the verse, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. <laughs> a little bit like what the angels saying, peace on earth, goodwill towards people on whom God's favor rests. So it's, it's interesting that it's, they say peace in heaven because maybe they're not really looking for peace on earth unless a king comes and conquers Rome and that way brings peace. They were hoping for that. But this really is very prophetic and profound that the people, as they're praising him, focus on this idea of peace in heaven. When actually Jesus, the prince of peace in heaven, has now come as the king of peace to this earth to set up his kingdom of peace, the gospel of peace. And it is going to be a peace that will be spiritual and change the hearts of people. It is not a peace that brings destruction to the Roman Empire. And the people, after Jesus died, his disciples realized, like, did, did Jesus as the Messiah fail? I mean, he had to be the Messiah. He rose from the dead, but did he fail? Because isn't the Messiah supposed to conquer Rome? But Jesus didn't come into Jerusalem on a horse or with a sword. Palm branches was his best weapon. <laughs> now, he came in riding on a donkey, with peace. Now I want to read to you number three. Paul, excuse me, Luke is focusing on this concept of the king of peace because these people allude to him being a king and being peace. Matthew, Mark, and John quote at least to some degree from this passage I'm going to read to you, but Luke chooses not to. He focuses on something else to show this concept of king and peace. He says, he, the others quote this, and then it was read earlier. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, which is fair enough to translate that word as deliverance. Okay, he's coming to bring deliverance. Yes. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Wait. What, what kind of peace is he now really bringing? Let me read on, verse 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim. The chariots are war instruments. God's going to take them away. And the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. What kind of peace is this going to be? We thought it would be a conquering to bring peace. But it goes on. He will proclaim peace 
to the nations. You see, through the gospel, he, will, he, the king, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule, listen to this, church, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river that is the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. And I'm going to assume, church, that this will include the 1040 window, which is so populated with other religions, especially Islam. Even there, the gospel will bring peace and people will submit to the rule of the king of peace, Jesus himself, who we see coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. So this is the kingdom that's conquering, but it's not conquering with sword. It is conquering with words of truth that Jesus has come to set us free from our sin and it is the victory over sin and then death that he has accomplished for us. That's the peace that he brings. And this world is wanting to see peace. It's wanting to see disarmament. It's wanting to see people getting along with each other and families. And this is great. To see nations being willing to work out some sort of compromise, hopefully not to their own sovereignty, though that is many times what happens, but Peace and just getting along and working through issues. But can I tell you this? That will never happen on our own human effort. Because we are a people made in the image of God, yes, but who are broken. And we cannot reflect that peace of God in this heart until this heart that's broken is healed. That God himself fixes it, that God puts it back together. That's the gospel of the, peace, of the peace of God's kingdom. That is the healing, that is the deliverance, the salvation that he's talking about here. That's what he comes to offer you. Peace, reconciliation that starts here and will invariably work its way out to bring peace between you and others. And can I just say this on the flip side of that? Jesus also said, many times there's balance in truth, right? Balance in truth. Jesus came to bring peace, to reconcile me with God and forgive this sin that has separated me from God, that now I'm going to be able to get along with my brother. But Jesus said this, I did not come to bring peace. But do you remember? A sword. Now, he's not talking about a physical sword. He explains, he says, within a family, three will be against two and two against three. A daughter will betray her mother and a son, her father, his father. There will be division. Why? Because Jesus, the truth of Jesus divides. And you can't stop that. And if we proclaim a gospel that doesn't do that, I'm going to suggest there is something wrong with that gospel that we are presenting. Because tr Jesus is divisive in the sense that he says, no one comes to the Father but by me. Wait a second, Jesus. Are you trying to say that you're the only person who has truth, that you yourself are truth, that I, I can't follow these other religions? I mean, who are you anyway? He is the king of peace. He is the one who conquers not the lands, the nations, but he conquers your soul. He conquers as the king that we would honor and worship him and no one else. And if he was not God, that would certainly be arrogant. If 
see truth. The, the truth is he's the Lord. The Lord means this, remember? He is God. And he speaks with authority. And he came to Jerusalem as that king of peace, not to conquer on a white horse, but it says here, to bring salvation from sea to sea throughout the world, including the 1040 wonder, everywhere his kingdom, the goal is that that kingdom conquers this heart. And some will not accept it. And Jesus knew that. We still love our enemies, but we recognize that they will persecute us. Let's be careful that we are gracious in how we speak and with our words we do not persecute them. The servant of the Lord is to speak with humility, with the hope that he would speak the truth, that the, that person who opposes that truth would be brought to repentance unto life. That's what Paul told Timothy. Be humble when you speak to those who oppose you. But Jesus, Jesus is divisive, church. The king of peace <clears throat> You see, even as my brother Ken, my oldest brother Ken, 10 years older than me, could have come not to rescue me and my friend Greg from our assailant, but to get things right with my parents. You see, even so, Jesus didn't come to conquer all of my enemies, my physical enemies, but he came to deliver Israel from himself. He came to bring peace between us and God. Now, the Pharisees, it says here, the Pharisees opposed this. The people were praising Jesus, Hosanna in the highest. Now, it, Luke does not say, use that term, Hosanna. Now, j just understand, much was said by people. We're talking about a crowd shouting probably a hundred different phrases. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John focus on different phrases. Some of them are similar, but for the most part, they're different. And Luke does the same. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Now, it's interesting. Jesus responds with this. He said, if they shut their mouths, the stones will cry out. Now, I'm going to focus on two things that Jesus meant by this. Even the stones will cry out. First thing is, stones can't talk. They can't. I know that some of us, when growing up, we had pet rocks. But they never spoke. And if they did, can you please see me afterwards? I want to talk to you. But, pet, but rocks don't talk. Inanimate objects can't say anything. When we look at Psalm 19, that one Wednesday night, the heavens declare the glory of God. Are they talking? No, they are giving silent testimony to the fact that there is a God. You see, that's how they talk. Even the, if, if these people don't say something, even the stones will cry. John the Baptist, when he's rebuking the Pharisees, the Pharisees are coming across somewhat arrogant, and he calls them out. And he says, if you would only bring forth fruit that's in accordance with repentance, do you not realize that God himself can raise up from these very stones descendants? He's not looking for children who are birthed into his kingdom, though he's looking for people who are truly wanting to follow him with their heart. God can, God can raise up descendants from stones. 
Now, Jesus is very simply saying this, point number one, that God, that God could take that which cannot say anything to declare these praises and point to Jesus. Just how would he do that? Actually, this is what we've been looking about in this whole series on truth. The heavens declare the glory of God. They give silent testimony to it. Last week, we looked at a number of things that I talked about. I want to share just a few things right now. Those things that cannot speak will then testify about him. For example, the miracles in the Gospels are not exaggerated. You see, in a legend, you would expect that. When you, when you see someone talking about a miracle, sometimes there's an exaggeration. The, the, the authors of the Gospels never do that. They don't embellish it. Let me, let me share with you something that was written. It's called the Gospel of Peter. It's what they call a, a, a pseudepigrapha or a false writing. It claims to be written by Peter, but everybody, even liberals, recognize that Peter didn't write this. It flies in the face of what the New Testament teaches about Jesus and even what Peter himself taught in the New Testament. This falls into the category of what's commonly called Gnostic Gospels, written in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. This is what it says. Two paragraphs I'm going to read to you. <coughs> now, during the night as the Lord's day dawned, when the soldiers stood guard in pairs of two at each watch, there was a loud voice from heaven, and they saw the heavens were opened. And from there, two young men came down, having great radiance, approaching the tomb. And the stone which was placed at the door rolled away on its own and partially gave way, and the tomb opened, and the two young men went in. So far, so good. But listen to this. Therefore, having seen this, excuse me, the soldiers woke up the centurions and elders, for they were also keeping watch. And while they were describing to them the things they had seen, behold, they saw three men coming out of the tomb, with the two younger men supporting the one. So the two angels came down. The one that they're referring to is Jesus, and they're supporting him. And a cross following them out of the tomb. <clears throat> and the head of the two, the two angels, reaching unto heaven. But the one of whom they led out by the hand, his head reached beyond the heavens. And they heard a voice from heaven saying, Did you preach to those who slept? And a response was heard from the cross saying, Yes. Clearly not something that's in accord with the gospel. When the two angels come out of the tomb with Jesus, they stand up and their heads reach the heavens and Jesus' head beyond the heavens. When the cross comes out, we have a talking cross. The, the, the gospels never talk about the resurrection like this and embellishing the details. As a matter of fact, what you have later in Luke is very simply this. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them, and in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he's still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. 
Luke then has them running back to the apostles to tell them what had happened. Very straightforward, nothing embellished about it. There's no talking cross, no angels who, whose heads, when they stand up, touch the sky. Nothing of that nature, just straightforward truth. And this then, as, as critics want to undermine the gospel, it reads like historical fact. Like someone's writing down exactly what they saw. Another thing that is, is pointed out is that the gospels, the synoptic gospels, are divergent. They don't tell the exact same story. They, they share a story it's, it's not that it contradicts how the other the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are called synoptic Gospels. In other words, from a, they share a view with one another. That's literally what synoptic means. They share a similar view, and they do. John is written quite differently. But even amongst these three Gospels, they diverge. But they don't contradict one another. They complement one another. Okay? Let me say that again. They don't contradict one another. They complement one another. Actually, this charge this, this, the skeptics bring that, you know, why do they diverge like this in their storytelling? There must be something wrong. Actually, there must be something right. Because a judge will tell you that if you have witnesses who sit down at the, at the witness stand and they tell the same exact story, he concludes they have corroborated. They have gotten together. They've shared their story so that the facts are the same. And they can see this. And when the facts are all the same and the story is the same, something's wrong here. They are now considered unreliable witnesses. Simon Greenleaf in 1948, he was, he was a lawyer from Harvard, along with uh, Lyle Story, I believe it was, who helped uh, catapult Harvard Law to the fame that it has today. Simon Greenleaf, was a, he became a Christian. He applied all of his lawyerism to the resurrection and, and the Gospels. And he concluded that the Gospels as factual evidence for the resurrection and the story of Jesus in our day would be able to be submitted into a court of law and received because the witnesses, the eyewitnesses, are so reliable. Simon Greenleaf said this. Let me move on. <clears throat> the disciples were fully convinced about who Jesus was. And their lives were radically changed. Now consider this, I'm going to be brief. I'm just going to kind of run through this quickly. They discarded, the Jewish Christians discarded the animal sacrifice system. Why? Because Jesus became that ultimate sacrifice. And they were convinced of it. They grew up sacrificing animals. And they left it behind to follow a new way that Jesus had fulfilled. They did this actually with all of the ceremonial law that Moses passed on to them. They accepted Jesus as the Lord, Yahweh, God himself. To a typical Jew, that would be blasphemy. That would be polytheism. But as we read through the, 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 the New Testament, we realize, nope, actually, it is still one God revealed in three persons. And when you understand that and you see how it fits together, it does not contradict the Old Testament at all. But what a new, novel concept for a Jew, for the disciples to embrace Jesus as God 
that would have run contrary to what they grew up with. So actually realize it was not. The Sabbath was viewed as fulfilled. They did not follow the Sabbath law anymore. The Messiah was not to come as a conquering king. They believed he would then come as a suffering Messiah. They set aside the dietary laws, the feasts, and even circumcision was set aside. It was no longer seen as a prerequisite for the covenant. Instead, they focused just on the Lord's Supper and water baptism. I'm suggesting that it would take a radical change in someone's belief structure to do that, to, to move from the Mosaic law to what the New Testament teaches. Something must have happened in these men's lives to have brought about such a radical change to convince them that everything Jesus taught was true and that he truly was the promised Messiah, the King of peace. Even Jesus' miracles could not be explained away. Can I just say this? That no other religion demonstrates miracles like the Gospels that are witnessed by many. You see, it's not the Koran that speaks of Muhammad performing miracles. Not one. Not one. But it's the Hadith, a writing of Islam, but written over 200 years after the Quran, after Muhammad died. Two quotes I, I want to read to you. So here's the contrast. In the early days of Christianity, you might be killed for becoming Christian. In the early days of Islam's growth, you might be killed for not being a Muslim. In other words, the spread of these two great monotheistic faiths couldn't have been more different. Islam spread by use of the sword on others. Christianity spread when others used the sword on it. Now one can understand why a religion spreads when it takes over militarily. And in the early centuries of Islam, it did. But why does this religion spread when its adherents are persecuted, tortured, and killed during its first 280 years? Those just are not good selling points. Christianity spread so rapidly in the face of persecution. People's lives were changed by these gospels. Radically changed. They give silent testimony. But let me just tell you the last thing as I wrap this up. The second thing, reason why Jesus shares this idea of the stones will cry out. Number one, as I say, the stones, they can't speak and they give silent testimony. But look at how the word stones, because you had me, uh, I had you underline the word stone later on. Going back to Luke 19, Jesus is entering Jerusalem and he's looking out over it and he gives a prophetic word. He's saying, if only today, Jerusalem, the people of God, if only today you would see who is bringing you peace. But your eyes are blinded. And then he says this. And I'm going to paraphrase. Forty years from now, the Romans are going to come. They're going to encamp about your city for three and a half years. Many will try to flee, but they will die. And 1.1 million people, most of which will die, will be conquered and the city destroyed. And the temple, not one stone will remain on another. 
And so when he uses the term stone, there will be, literally in the Greek it says, no stone upon stone. It'll all be torn down. And it becomes a testimony to the destruction of Jerusalem. Why? Because they refuse to acknowledge the king of peace as their king of peace. And 40 years later, God said, my people, you have rejected me and you have turned your own way and you have refused to listen to the words of my prophets and apostles. And it's now to bring a redemptive, it's now time to bring a redemptive judgment. A judgment that hopefully would cause the people of Israel to realize what they have done and how they have rejected Jesus. I'm going to share a quote from with you. This is by a gentleman by the name of Mara Barsarapian. It was written around 73 AD. He is a Stoic philosopher and he's writing to his son. Now listen to what he says. He is, he, 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 for the most part, people understand he's a pagan. He's not a Christian. And there's certain things that he, phrases he uses in here, that's clear. So he's not a Christian. There's no bias in this. It is a philosopher's point of view. What advantages did the Athenians obtain by putting Socrates to death? Famine and plague came upon them as judgment for their crime. What advantage did the people of Samos have burning Pythagoras? In one moment, their country was covered with sand. What advantage did the Jews gain by executing their wise king? It was just after that, 40 years later, I'm adding, it was just after that that their kingdom was abolished. God rightly avenged these men. The Athenians died of hunger. The Samians were overwhelmed by the sea. The Jews, ruined and driven from their land, live in complete dispersion. But Socrates did not die for good. He lived on in the statue of Hera. He did, nor did the wise king die for good, for, forever that is. He lived on in the teaching which he had given. Which, by the way, is a clue this man was not a Christian. He would have said he lives on because of his resurrection, you see. The silent testimony that even the Jews, when they were conquered by the Romans, 40 years later, God bringing judgment, saying to them, in essence, you have rejected my peace. And he says that at that point, that God, in Romans 11, that God took the Jews and he grafted them out of the vine because they rejected their wise king, because they refused to accept the king of peace, Jesus. This is a challenge for us in our day. We are crying out trying to give witness to Jesus, the cross and the resurrection to this generation that is seeking to sweep away and discard truth. And we're saying, no, this is truth. Here is truth. Come to the King of peace. Come to Jesus. I'll be willing to share any evidence that I can, but the bottom line is this must penetrate your heart and call you out of sin and bring you to this place of brokenness before God and humility and repentance that as you look to the God of heaven that you would realize that he has sent his son and apart from that son there is no life anywhere the gospel of peace doesn't necessarily come to bring peace with all of your enemies it comes to bring peace between you and your God
That is the truth. Whether you accept it or not, that is the truth. And it's up to you to acknowledge it for yourself. The Jews did not. Jesus stood as he was coming to Jerusalem, coming down the Mount of Olives and looking over at Jerusalem. And do you know what it says? Jesus wept. Two places in Scripture that talk about Jesus weeping before the tomb of Lazarus that he raised from the dead and the Jewish nation, which is about to be vanquished and pulverized under the hand of Rome. And his heart broke. And church, I'm just going to challenge us. May that heart and attitude of Jesus be our heart. That as we look out to this generation that's trampling on truth, that our hearts would be broken, that God would give us the heart of, of Jeremiah. He's called the weeping prophet. That we would be a weeping prophetic generation as Jesus wept over Jerusalem, that we would weep over this world that has chosen to discard the wise king of this universe and say, I will have nothing to do with him. Who is he? He is the only way the only truth, and the only way to life. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus, the King of Kings. That's who he is. Church, may our hearts be broken in this generation that as we press into God, that he would not discard this generation as he did with Jerusalem, but that he would have mercy and that his kingdom would indeed spread from sea to sea, from the great river to the ends of the earth. Amen? Can you stand with me? Father, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Give us the heart of Jesus as he wept over Jerusalem. Give us that heart that yearns to see revival in this land, in this world, in this darkness, God, that is ruling. And I ask you, Father, as our hearts are broken, that, Father, that, that if, if need be, we would repent. But that, Father, that we would cry out to you for repentance to come upon this land. That there would be something, a, a truth moving by your spirit from person to person as your kingdom conquers hearts. God, please do that in our day. King of peace. Jesus, as you rode into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, to declare who you were. May this generation rise up to accept you, the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Please, God, and embolden us, God, as we press in with that sense of weeping and brokenness on behalf of this generation, stepping in the gap for them. Win them, God. Please, God, give us great boldness in this day that your kingdom would extend throughout this world. Jesus' name we ask. Amen.